giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here today with my buddy Derek. Hey, Derek. Hello. How uh, has your week been? My week's been uh, a little short. I'm uh, taking a little bit of time off, heading over to the West Coast. Um, so I'm currently sitting in an Airbnb in Portland right now. Hmm. Yeah. What are you there for? Just to hang out. Wanted to take a little little vacation here just to recharge a bit. And um, there's a number of folks out here in Portland, um, actually from kind of the bootstrapper community, microconf attendees kind of clustered here in Portland. So just got a chance to spend some time with them and hang out and check out the city. And it's pretty cool. Nice. Yeah, I've been yeah. to Portland uh, a little while ago. It was, it was a good time. Yeah. I felt like Cambridge, but a little rainier mm. to me. Yeah, it has been raining the whole time we're here, which is not bad. I feel like I've been to Portland twice. This is my second time. The first time I was here, it didn't rain at all. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably not the true Portland experience. So mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Getting the full the full effect now. <laughs> cool. So you're on the move. Yeah. So you're meeting up with local bootstrapper folks a bit as you're there? Yeah, I reached out to um, Ruben Gomez from BidSketch, uh-huh. uh, lives out here, and one other guy who I know from microconf that I knew of lived here. So I reached out to those folks and um, they do a little meetup uh, once a month. And so connected up with them. And I just all of a sudden started seeing more faces that I didn't even realize lived here, which was pretty mm. awesome. <laughs> I'm like, hey, that guy, I know your name. <laughs> nice. So yeah. And then uh, a lot of the folks who live here have just moved here in the last few years. So I guess it really is true what they say, like everybody is moving to Portland. <laughs> is that a thing people say? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a thing definitely the locals feel like um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. never want to say you're from California if you're um, gotcha. in Oregon because they really don't like Californians. <laughs> mm. I heard this interesting thing from a guy who I think is like an urban planner. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that the model back in the 60s and 70s, if you were a city and wanted to grow, was you would try to become really attractive to businesses. Mm-hmm. So you would build big roads and lots of parking lots and lots of commercial zoning and all, and highways and things like that. And you would try to lure businesses there because then the businesses would bring people. Right. And Portland went the opposite route. And Portland yeah. built for people and, and a couple other cities. And what happened as tech kind of happened and uh, just the world changed. And now companies go where people are. Yeah. And people are in Portland. Yeah, I can totally see like it's a different experience when you're hanging out in downtown Portland. They have they call the open vistas concept or something like that, where it's like streets have to be a certain width and buildings Mm -hmm. can only be so tall. The idea is you're able to see like three or four blocks in every direction standing on any street corner. That's cool. And um, yeah, I did like a tour of Portland the first time I was out here doing kind of the touristy things. And uh, that was pointed out to me by a tour guide. It's like, yeah, that really does. Now that you pointed that out, it totally makes sense. I can see it. Yep. And uh, I think that's been in progress since, I don't know, 50s or 60s. So there's been a lot of planning going on for many years. Totally. Portland's very serious about like mixed use infrastructure. So it's like if yeah. you're going to build a road, you build a road and then space for a trolley car and a bike lane and a sidewalk. Right. I, yep. I love it. I think they're one of the, there's like three, two or three like cities like have like a gold ranking for bike infrastructure in the country. And I think it's mm-hmm. Boulder and Portland are the, the two that mm. are up there. Yeah, and Minneapolis is pretty strong too on its bikeability. That's uh, awesome. There's, I've heard that there's more actually more paved bike trails in the Twin Cities than there uh, is in Portland. Hmm. But um, that might just be because of the you know sheer size of the geography. But mm-hmm. that's awesome. I love a city with with good bike infrastructure. It makes it feel so much better to me. Mm-hmm. Cool. So um, I just got back from a conference. 
went to Big Snow Tiny Conf. I think I mentioned that last week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How was that? Uh, it was great. This is my second year. I went last year out in Colorado, and this year was up in uh, Vermont. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's a 12-person conference. Retreat is maybe a better word for it. Yeah. <laughs> but so we spent three nights there. Uh, two of the days went skiing together and then do like talks and uh, mastermind style sessions mm-hmm. uh, late into the night each night. And of course, like on the lift, ev- like everyone's basically talking business all the time. Sure. And it's, it was great. It's like people that are doing kind of similar things that I'm doing, that I'm doing, um, some with more experience, some with less, some mm-hmm. in different, uh, one of the attendees like runs a whole bunch of cell phone stores. So like physical oh, retail locations. Yeah. Uh, and some of them were e-commerce, like selling uh, wheels and tires, things like that. So it's, it's a really interesting mix of people that are all running businesses, but like different types. Hmm. And it was great to get ideas and get inspired and help offer advice to other people. It was, I really enjoyed it last year and, and I enjoyed it quite a bit again. Do you feel like you're able to learn things from like talking to a dude who runs a brick and mortar store? Like, is there crossover? I wouldn't say there's so much direct crossover, but it's it's interesting where like so he has a ton of sales experience because his mm-hmm. business is basically all in-person sales, and so right. he's, and he's hired hundreds of salespeople, and so one of the, the things that we're considering is is hiring sales folks ourselves, and so I was like running that idea by him and getting some input and some ideas like where do we find these people and, and just kind of riffing on that and like sales is a general enough concept that he could definitely offer some some advice. Cool. And for for a conference like that, is there designated speakers per se, or is it just kind of like high caliber of attendees talking to each other? <laughs> it's it's more the latter, but everyone gets a time, a specific slot. So okay. it's like we all got at least like forty five half an hour to forty five minutes to do kind of whatever yeah. you want. Got it. So some people, actually, none of them I would classify quite as talks. Mm-hmm. Um, so often people were sharing like, here's what we're working on, here's what's worked well for us. Mm-hmm. And almost always there would be some sort of back and forth. People like would say, well, what do you think of this? And have you thought of this? Have you tried this? So it was like very collaborative and less like mm-hmm. of a, a lecture style talk. Mm-hmm. But we all, you know, went, we all got our turn. So it was, it was cool. Yeah, nice. It was interesting too. There was, um, I think it was just one person, one person there who was still working a normal full-time job and not, not running a business, mm-hmm. um, but had like a, a sort of an idea. And he sort of pitched us on his business plan, which we sort of unanimously agreed was like way too ambitious for like a first try kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm thinking of getting into hiking, so I'm going to hike the Appalachian Trail. And we're like, uh, <laughs> maybe start with something a little more feasible. Um, yep. But it was just, it's good f- for me, I think, to go and see people more experienced and less experienced because you get mm-hmm. different things from each person. Mm-hmm. And not to say that like the less experienced person was, it's just, I have learned a lot of things along the way. And when you yeah. see someone who's like a little bit behind you, you can say, oh, yeah, that's right. Like I, I take for granted some of these things that I've got now in my tool belt and some of this knowledge I have. And it's kind of nice to, to have that pointed out. Yeah, I feel like it's a good reminder of like the, the fundamentals that you already know. Like mm-hmm. we're always taking in so much information all the time and it's sometimes it's conflicting advice. So I feel like learning by teaching like kind of solidifies Mm. where you stand on certain things so if you know someone's pitching you on a business idea and you're like critiquing it for them or helping them evaluate whether it sounds viable or not mm-hmm. you're kind of like pulling out of your toolbox and forming advice and ideas and it i've found that it has often helped me to recall something that maybe hasn't been in the forefront of my mind and you know could actually be helpful in whatever i'm working on mm-hmm. in my business totally so, yeah kind of learning by teaching you know yep there's a saying in med school, which is uh, watch one, do one, teach one. Yeah. So when you're learning like a new procedure mm-hmm. and like it's that, it's that last phase where like it really kind of gets locked in. Yeah. So it was a good, it was a good opportunity for that. Yeah. I, t- I found that a lot too, like in, in school doing tutoring, like 
even if it's the same subject matter that I'm just that I just learned last week, if I tutor somebody on it, then it's all the more solid in my brain, and I oh, yeah. gain a deeper level of understanding. So. For sure, that's cool. It's and it, it, as you'd imagine, there are like a lot of strong opinions too. It's a little bit mm-hmm. of a free for all kind of, where it's like you have no context, or like it's hard to get much context in like a short time. And so yeah. everyone's kind of throwing out these ideas and like, you should do this, you should think about that. Have you thought about this? And it's like, eh, some of this is maybe good advice. Some of it's maybe not. It's kind of hard to tell, but there's an right. idea flow coming at you, which is good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I took down some notes and, and got some inspiration and I, I have some things I'm excited to try out. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Do you feel like a conference like this becomes an echo chamber? Hmm. Because I recently read a blog post, uh, Josh Pigford from Bear Metrics um, wrote a blog post. I thought it was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Titled it, um, something like the startup industry is an echo chamber and is making you deaf or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea behind it is that we often will just kind of listen to other people within our same community who are reflecting back the same ideas back and forth um, amongst us all. And yeah. if you're not bringing in information from outside sources or just people completely outside of the tech industry, you can end up kind of just in an echo chamber, essentially. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I think that's definitely a possibility. One thing I, yeah. I tried to do specifically at this conference was not offer advice that I had heard, but mm-hmm. offer advice only when I had like a personal experience around it. Yeah. I think that like, if you can just like, oh, I know the prevailing wisdom on this thing, let me repeat right. it to you, that definitely can create that situation. Yep. Um, and I don't know to what degree that was happening from other people, but I, I try to avoid that explicitly where it's like, <sighs> I, don't, I don't know much about this thing, so I'm not going to say anything, even though, you know, I read a blog post one time or I read a, a right. blog title one time that suggested something else. Yep. Um, so I, I think that's definitely a concern. Yeah. I like that approach though, because I feel like we can all end up with so much hearsay. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And who knows? I, and I feel like situations are so, can be so unique too. So it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, the prevailing wisdom on X is that you should do Y, but like, who's to say that really applies in this situation? Like yeah. it, how much, how much advice is there that applies to everything always? Like basically none. Right. So we got to be, I think, I think it's, I'm, I try to not repeat that too much. Yeah, the more I learn, the more my answer is it depends, you know, mm-hmm. like, I feel like when you when you're learning, like the early fundamentals, everything in your mind is absolutes. And you're like, no, I, you should never have a free plan. And you should never raise VC. But now it's right. like, well, now I'm starting to see the gray, you know, totally. So yeah, I think that's happened to me in every field that I've mm-hmm. gotten or every yeah, every field I've gotten more experienced in is you see the gray. And yep. I will say that when you are a beginner, I think it's valuable to have those black and whites, actually. Yeah. Like black and whites will be close enough for you as a beginner often. Yeah. When someone's brand new, I often will eliminate some of that nuance yep. and say like, just don't ever do this for now. And right. then like, we'll know, like when, when you know enough that you start to question that, you, you'll yeah. be able to sort of decide for yourself if it's time to, to ignore that rule. It's like starting beginner mode. And then like, once you've learned enough, you can go like full manual transmission. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Start, like, <laughs> yeah. Or it's like, if you're like, you're cook, you're learning to cook, like just follow the recipe. Don't improvise, yep. like measure yep. the salt, measure the pepper, like do like do all that stuff. Like don't no flexibility at first. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's sound advice. Yeah. So just just like what happened last year, like I, I really like this conference because I find it inspiring. Like it's there's people to look up to and like good mm-hmm. ideas come out of it. And it's like I was jotting down a lot of notes, particularly mm-hmm. around uh, marketing automation. Uh, Brian Castle or Cassell. I don't even know how to say his name. I've known him for a couple of years. It's Castle. Great. Yeah. Brian Castle is mm-hmm. there. And he is uh, leveraging drip quite a bit in his like marketing mm-hmm. funnel for audience ops in an intelligent way. And in a pretty, um, it, it made me realize how little we're doing. Like we're mm-hmm. getting, I'm getting emails. We have Im- emails showing up in Upcase like pretty regularly. And we are totally underutilizing the fact that like we now have people's emails and can market to them. 
Right? Yeah. So there's there's a lot. I, I'm realizing how much work I have to do, but I think it's going to mm-hmm. be very useful. Make money work. So yeah, it's cool. Worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, so I have a question for you. All right. Which is, is there a noticeable person or position that you hired in the history of Drip that had a really strong impact? Hmm. I think probably the most pivotal hire we made was when we brought on Anna. Um, so before hiring Anna, it was Rob was heading up kind of just the, the marketing side of things. I was heading up the development side. We had a few junior devs on the team mm-hmm. at the time. Like contractors? Actually, they were local and they were their actual employees, not contractors, um, okay. full time that we had um, run a Rails class, sponsored a Rails class, essentially, at the little startup building going on in Fresno. Uh-huh. And so I taught the class for six weeks and then we hired two junior devs out of that class. Huh, so really brand new to uh, to Rails, but we couldn't find any Ruby developers, really. There were like there's a handful and they were all employed. So mm-hmm. once we kind of made it through that batch of folks, you know, we. We had no other options, but we wanted to, we wanted to experiment with the, the local approach and working out of the same office at least part of the time. Mm. So, mm-hmm. and we were budget constrained, so we couldn't necessarily, you know, hire a bunch of senior devs right away. Right. So that was, I mean, that was definitely instrumental getting more developer help. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm curious, I, I'm to, not to divert too much, but I'm curious how well that worked. Yeah. Um, it worked pretty well. I mean, it, it was, there were definitely challenges you know, training junior developers while actually trying to pick up the pace essentially of the features we're building. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say it was rewarding because, um, I, we've gotten to see these folks, you know, learn more about and become level up their experience. And so that's been rewarding and just mentoring and, and all that. But, mm-hmm. um, it was challenging to not let that slow us down as well. Yeah. That would be my concern, but you felt that like yeah. sort of net net, it sped you up. Yeah, I think so. And we deliberately picked people who, you know, maybe they didn't have a whole lot of programming experience, but it was clear that they had a knack for kind of the the fundamentals behind programming. And mm-hmm. so like we spotted the opportunity there. One was a um who's still with us uh is was a philosophy professor hmm. who was looking to do a career change. And so he has like really solid understanding of logic and how to reason about programming problems, even though he wasn't really a, a programmer before this. Yep. And then uh, the other junior dev that we hired just had been like hacking projects together. He was a brewmaster for a brewery hmm. and he had been hacking together like Excel macros and things and basically doing ad hoc programming here and there to make his job easier. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he started getting into the craft of programming, he was all about like doing things the Ruby way and learning the best practices. And, you know, he was just really on top of that stuff. So we kind of recognized the potential in these folks and uh, and kind of leveraged that as we mentored them. Mm. Okay. So you have a team of three developers? Team of three developers and just Rob by himself kind of doing marketing. And okay. um, I think I've talked about this before in pr- past episodes, but we were, we were starting to get more and more people who wanted to see demos of the product. They wanted more hand-holding, kind of like sales essentially, but mm-hmm. inbound requests for it. We were never planning to go out and solicit sales in that in the early days. But did, did you um, have a request like a requ- request a demo button? Uh, we eventually did. Uh huh. But prior to that, people were just emailing in to support, saying like, "Can you demo the product for me?" Huh. I've never gotten that email for really? any, any of our products. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think it's it's probably because um, you know once we started reaching past the 
innovators and the tinkerers. Mm-hmm. You know, we were reaching, you know, people inside of companies who were making buying decisions were starting to, you know, hear about drip. And mm-hmm. I think those types of buyers really wanted to get the full high touch experience, I yep. guess. Okay. So it didn't happen right away, but it just was something that was gradually starting to happen more and more. Uh, so our, our first response to that was to record demo videos and just send those, email them, those to people. Um, then Rob would occasionally like cater them custom to the person's use case. So they would describe what they're doing and he would, I'm not sure if he would reuse parts of the same video and just like record a, a new intro or if he would do a full custom one. Mm-hmm. It's probably kind of on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that really wasn't scalable and you know, he's only one person. So around the time we brought on Anna, we, things were starting to, really click in. Uh, we found like we were finding our market. We reached achieved product market fit and bringing Anna on just, uh, really allowed us to scale that side of things. Mm -hmm. So what was she spending most of her time doing? It was crafting our demo funnel. So started out just doing like anytime someone would request a demo, she would send them a Calumly link and, you know, hop on a call with them and do the demo. And, I'm trying to think there's, there actually might be a public talk. She gave a talk at microconf right. and she kind of talks about architecting the demo pipeline. Mm-hmm. And that would probably be the best way to get like the, the full details. But there were basically four phases that I think, and the first one was just sending out the videos and then progressively the demo funnel improved over time. I don't mm. have those phases in my head right now, but yeah, yeah. it was like a year process to, to basically hone in on the, the optimal um, demo pipeline. Huh. So interesting. And so that had sort of like the bit to you, that was the most noticeable impact. I think so. Yeah. That correlated with increase in trials, increase in revenue, um, converting trials. I mean, we were bleeding out a lot of trials because people were not getting the high touch experience. They wanted more education. They wanted us to sell them on why drip was better than the alternatives. Yep. And having a person dedicated to that helped. Was she mostly working with people that had requested a demo explicitly or was she doing any like rescue missions where it's like we have these trials that are clearly not activated they need help go help them yeah i think there was some of that i think a portion of what she was doing early on was i think we call them like account strategy calls where it's like a you know someone's already in and they need help setting up their account Mm -hmm. so i'm not sure actually the mechanism that she found like who needed help um Hmm. i know we got we've gotten more advanced over time on trying to figure out who might need help like asking what's your current subscriber count um, when you sign up for a drip account. And Hmm. if we can, we know then if that person hasn't uploaded their list yet, they probably need help moving their account over or architecting it. So Hmm. um, I I was talking to one of the conference attendees this this week and he was saying that he was having a lot of people sign up for trials and then not be successful. Mm -hmm. And basically, so he he never activate. He had like this, this step that was like, if you don't do this, clearly you're never gonna get value from the product. And so like, anyone that's not over that line is is in trouble yeah and he said i was like basically desperate he's like it was a desperation move like i, I needed to rescue more of these trials because otherwise we weren't going to grow and so i just started doing this thing where like if a couple days in they hadn't reached that point we would use intercom to do like a full page overlay of like hey we don't offer this to everyone but i'd like to give you a strategy account like yeah like, like this the thing i forget what the words were for it it had, it had, yeah. it had a good name for it it was something like consultation it sounded like a consultation more or less mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and we often will charge 200 dollars for this but we're gonna give it to you for free 
click here to schedule with me. And like yeah. he would offer that and then offer it again if they didn't respond and then email them if they didn't respond and like just kind of like get kind of aggressive about trying to get somebody on a call to talk to them and help them out. And he said that, he, so he's only been doing it for a couple months now, but he says that so far the churn rate of people that do the call versus not is a third. Hmm. And it's like, that is, that's huge. Yeah. And it's, that's at least for his business. I imagine for many, like that's gotta be a good ROI for you. Yep. It's, it's, it's kind of a simple thing, but like, we're not doing that very well on, on right now. Like we have like FormKeep has a trial and we're converting something like six, like the mid sixties of the mm-hmm. percent of those people. And so mm-hmm. it's like, you get a lot of people that signed up and gave you a credit card and like expressed interest and then just didn't, it didn't work out for some reason, but I'm sure we could capture some, like some percentage of those people back if we helped them. Uh, and we're, we send them some automated messages like, hey, like you haven't done this. Do you want to do it? And like, you haven't done this. Do you want to do it? And then it's kind of like, never. All right, we give up. Just fine. Yeah. Do they normally just kind of go silent? Like no, no response to any of your attempts to. Yeah, they don't, they don't out. answer those. I, I, we get almost no answer people answering the message. Yeah. But I think it's, it's less like, hey, can I help you? And more like, you haven't done the thing yet. Like you should do the thing. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, we've, yeah, it's hard to get information from people who are either voluntarily churning or just involuntarily churning out, you mm-hmm. know, does someone have to explicitly cancel because you're collecting credit cards. So yes. is it like if they don't hit a cancel button and go through the flow, then they will get charged. So yes. they have to do that step. Yep. Are you, what kind of post cancellation follow up do you guys have? Is it uh, just an, it's an basically email? one email, which is what's really short. It's like, hey, is there anything we could have done to save your business? Yeah. Uh, and that's it. How do, what's your response rate look like on that? Is it? Uh, I don't I haven't looked at it in a while. We do get okay. responses from it. A few roll in a cup every week. And that feedback hasn't been super useful, actually, I would say. Mm-hmm. It's mostly mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, like I was using it on a client project and we stopped. Yeah. Or like I just wanted to check it out and I kind of poked around and now I'm, I'm done. Which tells me that there's probably other cancellation reasons that I'm not hearing about that would be more yeah. useful that we could yeah. like follow up on better. Yeah. we One of the things we added, I think this was from the get-go when we allowed self-cancellation in Drip, mm-hmm. which I, yeah, I'll, I'll mention it, but I don't have metrics on how helpful it's been but we have like when you click cancel we bring up a modal and it's like are you sure you want to cancel and we'd like tell them like you have this many subscribers in your account or and if they've made if they have a conversion goal um created and they've received conversions we're like we've already made you this much money Mm. and then at the bottom it's like yes i'm really sure i want to cancel my account or click here and support will reach out like Mm. And assist you with whatever you need help with. Like, if you need help, we're here for you. Hmm. And a handful of people on a regular basis do click that button, but I don't know how effective that's been on actually saving their accounts. But a lot of times it's, I remember, I recall, like, sometimes people just have like a trivial thing, like, oh, I couldn't figure out how to send a campaign. So Mm -hmm. I'm canceling. And it's like, oh, well, we can definitely tell you how to do that. Yeah. 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 (laughs) You know, that's an interesting thing. Yeah. Our, our, we just let them cancel. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah. doing uh, that that sort of like last second rescue thing i bet saves so, would save something yeah uh, but t- to me like once they're like ready there and clicking the cancel button you're probably that, it's like that's such a last ditch thing if you yeah. but like i can predict when that's going to happen like if yep. you sign up for form keep and you never send us any data you're going to cancel like i don't mm-hmm. need to like guess that that's going to happen and so if right. it's been a day or two like our, our successful people send us stuff almost right away like mm-hmm. they make a form they send data and like they're they're integrated on their site within like an hour Mm-hmm. And so if it's been a couple of days, you're probably, you're, you're in danger and I got to right. reach out to you. Yeah. And I guess that's where like the trial onboarding funnels become so important. Yeah. Like we have every other day, there's an email nudging you to, and we're tracking in drip, like whether someone has accomplished certain steps, like activating a campaign, uploading their subscribers, um, 
yep. activating a workflow, whatever. And we're like, hey, you haven't done this yet. You haven't done this yet. Totally, yeah. And that's so we have like a couple of those emails, but they not we're not great about it. Um, yeah. And, and also, it's kind of like if you do the bare minimum, we're we stop emailing you, as mm-hmm. opposed to saying, oh, hey, now that you've done that stuff, that's great. By the way, there are a couple of these these other great things you might want to know about. Right. Like the the Zapier integration, for example, is like is really useful, and some people just don't know about it, and they don't do mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like things we could telling people that would help them have more success. Right. Um, so I think that's a really fertile part of our, of the funnel right now, mm-hmm. um, that mm-hmm. I'm going to go spend some time on and see what I can achieve there. Yeah. It's just all, all incremental gains from that stuff, you know, like probably yep. nothing's going to be like a giant <laughs> bump, but right. all added up, you know, it kind of, it, it accumulates. Totally. So. Yep. That's the beauty. Yeah. If you can, if you if you get a ten percent lift in like any phase of the funnel, that's like that goes to the bottom line, right? That's it mm-hmm. flows all the way down. So, yeah, cool. Yeah. All right, I guess it's gonna be a slower week for both of us, but we can wrap up right there. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Today's show was edited and produced by Tomato Tomato Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm/slash two twenty eight. Thanks for listening. 